Hello and welcome to the View from the Castle podcast, where we talk all things legal finance. I'm your host, Pip Murphy. The legal finance industry is interesting, diverse and forever changing. So here at The View from the Castle, we will talk all things legal finance. We hope to give you the insider's guide to legal finance and provide you with tips and tricks to accessing, obtaining and using legal finance. And we hope to shine a light on those individuals and companies operating in the legal finance industry to showcase their relevant experience and expertise. Each week, I will talk to people who have been there and done that. We will discover what is happening in the legal finance industry and what we can do to enhance and improve it together. Thank you for joining us today for the next Legal Finance and the View from the Castle podcast. Today we are joined by Simon Bellis of Jones Day and Craig Shepherd and Ted Fitzgerald of Cordamentha. Simon is an international disputes partner at Jones Day with a practice focused on large-scale construction projects, especially in the energy and resources and infrastructure sectors. He has particular experience working with owners and with overseas engineering, procurement and construction contractors. Simon is a highly ranked arbitration and construction lawyer and has managed some of the largest international arbitrations and litigation in the Asia-Pacific region. Simon is a member of the Jones Day Arbitration Team, recognised by Global Arbitration Review as a leading international arbitration law firm in the GAR 30. Craig commenced his career in banking before moving into the field of restructuring more than 25 years ago, and he has extensive experience in independent investigating accountants' reviews, business restructuring and formal insolvency appointments in Australia, Asia and the United Kingdom. Craig's engagements have included companies and financial institutions in construction, property, retail, mining, manufacturing and the retirement living industries. Craig is a member of the Australian Restructuring Insolvency and Turnaround Association, or ARETA, and a Senior Associate of Financial Services Institute of Australasia. Ted has in excess of 15 years of industry experience, extending across a wide range of asset types, markets and transactions. With proven project management skills, he is adept with complex transactions and advisory matters. Ted has considerable experience in distress development workouts and a deep understanding of development pressure points. This means he can quickly assess and provide valuable insight into the shortcomings of any real estate development, regardless of the classification or market. Ted's ability to understand complex situations has seen him consistently deliver outcomes on some of Australia's most complex and challenged real estate engagements. Ted is an associate of the Australian Property Institute and a member of the Urban Development Institute of Australia. The Castle team have seen a definite rise in the number of insolvency matters that are being brought to us for funding in the last few months. This includes insolvencies in the construction industry. Off the back of those inquiries, I asked Simon, Craig and Ted to join us to tell us what they believe is causing this increase in construction insolvencies. The overall sentiment from the discussions in this podcast was that there are going to be more insolvencies in the construction industry, as that is an industry which is high on the ATO's list of targets. We hope you enjoy this lively and informative discussion.
Before we get started, I do have a question for each of you to kick things off. I don't mind who goes first, but I'm looking at you, Ted. Um, my question is, if I met one of your closest friends in the street today and asked them to describe you to me or to tell me what you were best known for amongst your mates, what would they tell me? Um, that's a very tough question. I'll, I'll describe Ted. The, the laconic Ted Fitzgerald would, is what I would say. Very laid back uh, and all, all over the detail, but very laid back in his approach to life. <laughs> Thanks, Chef. I don't know if that's a compliment. It is. It sounds like it is. Um, um, well, would you like to describe describe Craig then? Uh, very similar, laid back, but coming with a bit more intensity than I am. If you can marry the two, intensity and laid back, I think uh, that personifies uh, Craig. Yeah, no, he's probably right. I can bring a bit of passion and a bit of excitement at times. Always seems to be in a positive mood, Craig. True. And what about you, Simon? I probably have an unfair um, reputation for liking a whiskey in my left hand and maybe a, a tennis racket or a squash racket in my right. Well, thank you so much for uh, indulging me with this question. Um, it has given the listeners some fantastic insights into each of each of you. If we can move to the main topic of the podcast today, which is the rise of insolvencies in the construction industry in Australia. We know that businesses operating in the Australian building and construction industry face an unacceptably high risk of either entering into insolvency themselves or becoming the victim of insolvency further up the contractor chain. We also know that the construction industry accounts for usually 22 to 24% of all Australian company insolvencies, although there is some talk at the moment that that could be as high as 30% of Australian insolvencies, which is quite a high percentage of insolvencies. Simon, starting with you, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing and experiencing in the construction industry at the moment and what the construction sector looks like? Oh, absolutely, Pip, and thanks very much for um, having me today. I agree with everything you said in um, the introduction and would say that that's coming out of a, a, a global context across sectors where there's been strong growth um, for the construction industry there is still a strong order book, particularly in Australia with infrastructure um, and also opportunities with the energy transition. But there are um, significant uh, headwinds. We've heard a lot about issues with the supply chain, uh, shortages, challenges during the intense periods of COVID, rising costs and inflation. Um, and that's particularly the case with a lot of the vertical builds that we see around town. So in terms of the broader picture. Um, there's opportunity, risk, uncertainty and change. Um, and the topic that we're talking about today is absolutely uh, beyond topical. So many high profile uh, examples of insolvencies uh, within the construction sector. The timing of the of the session really just determines which of the high profile uh, insolvencies we talk about at the moment. Caden uh, Property Group is front of mind, but in the past we've had RCR, Forge, Grocon and um, ProBuild. Uh, I suppose the last point I'd make is, is that we often do focus on those large high profile insolvencies, but the true story sort of lies often um, one or two levels below that with the suppliers and the subcontractors and the, the families that are actually impacted by it. It's, it's a significant problem. Yeah, certainly is. I think a couple of the points of the rising costs, um, materials, the labour market, they are 
putting a significant digestion problem into the industry and it's digesting these issues that when we enter long duration contracts on fixed prices at what we've seen at pre-pandemic or pandemic pricing and we're putting into the mix 10, 20% cost increases, we're going to see uh, a number of builders and or subcontractors hit the wall. And that's what we're experiencing at the moment. I think Craig could probably talk to the stats that are out there at the moment, but we're coming off a pretty low base through COVID where the government had certain reforms and legislation in place that prevented uh, insolvencies. Yeah, Ted, thanks. I think the stats are interesting. Um, because you made the comment pre-COVID, the normal run rate for a construction sector was around low 20s. You put that in perspective as well, though. So just to give your listeners some numbers, in any year pre-COVID, there were about 8,000 formal insolvencies. They got as low as 40% like forty of that through COVID because there were no triggers for accountability, no enforcement, so it all ground out. Yeah. Pre then as well, the construction sector is a pretty important contributor to GDP, but disproportionate because it's about 8 to 9% but you're seeing sort of low 20s fall over. I, I think it's important to unpick the, the stats a little bit, though. Simon mentioned Grocon. Um, we've got ProBuild. I was the administrator of Grocon. When that was recorded as an insolvency, it wasn't one, it was recorded 84, because there's 84 companies in that group. Um, and what we've seen over recent times is a number of large builders fall over. And they typically structure with a lot of SPVs. So it, it, when you look at the actual raw data, it does spike a bit. So I think... We are seeing more uh, and we are seeing more in this industry uh, and I think there's a number of reasons which I think we'll cover today uh, and I think they'll probably grow a bit more. And some of those um, companies I think we've seen where perhaps some of the companies in the construction group are going into liquidation or administration but others are not. Are you seeing that as well, that there's a split in the construction companies as to how they're operating? Yeah, look, I, I think... Again, Caden, I think it's interesting. It's only recent. Um, I, I believe, and I'm not 100% sure, but I, I think that was triggered by a, a DP and a director penalty tax notice, but we'll come back to the impact of the ATO. Um, but I think in that one, you see there's an appointment as as liquidator and receiver over the headstock, but then the actual subsidiaries beneath, they're not. They've switched out some, some directors to get control, but to choose a better way, a softer landing. Mm. And in part, that's to keep with some of the companies that are actually building these homes to keep some of those projects alive. Absolutely. Well, as you, I think all your listeners understand it. In an insolvency event, it starts to trigger some consequences mm. that you don't necessarily want and any construction company is really a collection of contracts. And it's probably worth looking then that transfer from construction to developer that, you know, Caden is mainly predominantly a developer. And out there what we're experiencing at the moment is revenues are flatlining. Uh, we're probably seeing in some markets they're coming backwards, revenues. Uh, we've got cost increases through construction and finance costs. And when you look at your feasibilities, the developers, the only things that can move are profit and or land value or what you can pay for a site. Profits are already as skinny as they've ever been. And what we're seeing in some markets is land value is coming back as a consequence of the flatlining, flatlining revenues and the cost increases of construction and finance costs. So there is a broader context that the construction is impacting and we'll see that probably play out over the next 12 to 18 months. Just in relation to the profit margins falling, I've seen some numbers in relation to that being 
that the profit margins are down to 8% from 25%. Does that is that sort of reflective of what you're seeing in the market? Well, we've, we've got to differentiate, I think, between developers' profit, mm. profit margins and the margins in which builders put on projects. Uh, from a developer's profit margin perspective, yeah, we see them as low as 10 12% on an internal rate of return perspective. So they are under significant pressure. We've seen groups in the market buy at a certain level and banking capital growth, which is increasing their uh, return on their original feasibilities. From a builder's perspective, you know, margins can be as low as two, three percent, and even negative margins where you're trying to win on leading gains. Um, but typically, you know, uh, a commercial, you know, vertical multi-unit builder will charge anywhere between three and eight percent margin on top of the build cost. And in that you're talking about in a normal environment, not necessarily the current environment that we're in, which is lots of insolvencies in the construction industry. They're the sorts of margins that you'd see in a normal environment. So they're already fairly skinny as it is, as you said. So there's not a lot of room to move there. Yeah, I think Simon could probably touch on the other mechanisms in contracts like rise and fall that uh, protect builders. Absolutely, but I I think that the fundamental point is in addition to these very skinny margins we have a a problem in the industry where we don't properly price the the jobs in the first place so a risk will be transferred to a contractor to build something within a certain amount of time for a certain price and the job won't be fully understood at that time and that's completely independent to inflationary pressures etc so there isn't any wonder why we sort of see the problem that, that we see well, in that stack that we're talking about, I guess you go to the next level. So the, the builders at that sort of margin, you can only imagine what the, the principal yeah. subcontractor and then the other subtrades, what margins they're working on, because that transfer of risk just keeps getting pushed down the chain to a ultimately to a level that can't hold it. Is mm. a price taker at times are presented with contracts that they, I believe, don't have the time or sophistication to even consider, get on with it and hopefully get through it. Yeah. And I think timing is really important here because insolvency, as we all know, is something that happens at a particular point in time when you can't pay your bills as and when they fall due. In that supply chain that you just mentioned, you'll have a contractor or a subcontractor that has monthly outlays that have to be paid that will be on these skinny margins and with various other problems. But it's quite common for them to either get underpaid or for there to be delayed payment. And if you've got three or four projects on the go and one or two of them, is providing you with problems with timely payment, it can very easily put you into a situation where you have to go and talk to these guys. Well, it creates a real contagion impact. And and we've seen that on a couple of jobs that we've been involved in where (coughs) there's been a formal large bill to go down and we'll work for a developer and they'll think they're okay with their principal trades and but not realise that that same principal trade has exposure to a couple of pro-build sites and is totally overextended. So then you need to, you really need to unpick it. You can't just look at a trade supplier at face value on their individual. You actually need to look when things start to fall, where else are they going to be impacted? Because if they're owed money on another site and they fall over because of that, it's going to then affect your project, your site. Mm. Um, and we've seen a lot of that over recent times with the developers we've been assisting. It, it's very hard to understand the contagion risk when entering into contracts at the moment for that very reason. A problem project can sink a builder, and we've seen that in a number of high-profile cases. To understand all the sub-trade on and the ecosystem that exists out there in the construction industry, it's very hard to de-risk 
any project at the moment unless you've got a very strong counterparty and balance sheet. And we're seeing developers that flight quality happen out there in the market at the moment going to those who can stand by their own cap liabilities. There's not many, but there are a few, so long as that parent company guarantee sits there. So I'm hearing from everything that you're saying that one of the most important things that people should be doing now is due diligence. But even then, there's a limit to what you can do in terms of your due diligence on your contracting party. But it's a good start, at least, to make sure that when you're entering into these contracts that you're not necessarily going to be affected by this contagion risk that you're talking about. It is very hard to understand in its entirety that contagion risk and the due diligence because to a certain degree, the market, the construction industry has a lack of transparency. There's a lack of transparency from the builder up to a developer by way of what's happening at subcontractor level because they're, they're, they're not joint parties. There's no tripartite agreement between a builder, subcontractor and developer. So it's really hard to understand the true cost to complete a project and truly understanding its position. Like I guess we saw recently assisting a developer who had, as you'd expect in a commercial development, receiving um, statutory declarations on a monthly basis, remitting the payment when the, when the construction or the builder fell over and we've sat down with trades to work out where they were, some of them hadn't been paid for five months. Mm. But the developer had been paying it on the basis of the paperwork. You can't accept it on face value and yeah. even trust it. And just on that point, the trade cycling that's happening out there at the moment, Craig talked to the, you know, the price takers. There's always someone to fill the shoes of another trade or subcontractor that's left the site. And they might be unwillingly turning up to site thinking they're going to get paid, maybe because they don't have the experience in that level of, you know, the legislation that exists and SOPA and, and the reforms that have come over the last few years that exist and protect those trades. So do you think then that this is a situation that we're going to continue to see and experience in the course of, I mean, there's talk about sort of next two to three years. I don't know if that's perhaps too long, but um, I think we're going to see it in the short term at the very least. But is this something we're going to continue to see and how long do you think we're going to be experiencing this? I've been working in construction disputes now for 20 years and unfortunately it's not a cyclical problem. It's um, something that was around before I started and has continued throughout. And the problem has existed across good economic conditions and, and bad economic conditions. So whilst we've cited a whole lot of the um, headwinds that the industry is dealing with at the moment, such as supply chain and inflation, they are exacerbating the situation. But I don't think it would be fair to say that they are the, the sort of fundamental causes. The media is really um, hanging the hat on COVID as being the main cause for all of this. So you, you don't necessarily oh, agree that that is... I think COVID's just... COVID's a trigger. It's created a falsehood where there's, there's been no speeding fines, no one holding any businesses to account because we hit COVID, there's a lot of stimulus put into the market mm. and there was a you, you couldn't enforce your debt, all for a good reason. They wanted to create a soft landing, but it created a false sense of security. So I see it's more of a bit of a, a, a catch-up. Um, it, it was, and with the price escalations and, the, and, and then overlay that with the, the labour force issues, mm. the resource issue there, until we fix the labour force, and, and get more open our borders, 
this is just highlighting a particular industry, but we're seeing it in other industries as well, but one that's very labour intensive and we just don't have the labour. Um, or the what, supply, because yeah, yeah. the supply issue is a significant one, isn't it, in yeah. terms of getting product into this country? Yeah, I think the labour's a bigger it. issue. I, yeah. I really do. And I think we're starting to see the prices sort of not level out but slow down and not increase as much. But we we, we need to fix the supply of labour now. Mm -hmm. And we've, with Ted will speak to what we were talking earlier about, the, the, the infrastructure projects that are forecast to come through, like the, the, the flight to quality, people will go where they'll get paid the most. Where will they get paid the most? on the infrastructure projects. So where's the labour going? It's mm -hmm. going to go to those projects. You look at the infrastructure projects and the, Craig mentioned the stimulus that's been in the economy that's impacting the construction industry in a positive way because there's more work has negative consequences. Like the Home Builder Scheme was one that was taken up by a lot out there in the market. and. The builders are just responding to that economic demand. And you look at the infrastructure project, I think the stats were Victoria is going to spend $90 billion on infrastructure projects over the next four years. You've got to rewind 12 years of infrastructure spend prior to this year that it took us to get to $90 billion. So that's a hell of a lot of stimulus out there in the market, particularly when we've got material constraints and, as Craig said, labour, mm. who are going to go into the bigger sites where they get paid more. So that flight to quality is, is going to exist, uh, which is going to put pressure down the line, pressure down to, you know, your medium density or your vertical multi-res builds and those at the bottom are probably the home builders who are going to um, be impacted. And you mentioned, you know, are things uh, going to get better or going to get worse? As I understand it, you know, coming out of COVID, there were some fairly um, muted statistics on construction insolvencies because the, you know they weren't happening because of the stimulants and the, the um, moratoriums and the like, but the, the last few quarters has been yeah, a look, spike. Yeah, look, the, the ATA is the ultimate decider or accounter to issue those speeding fines So as far as winding up and alike. So just broad-based Australian tax, pre-COVID there was about low teen call it $15 billion of revolving business debt to the ATA. That blew out to circa 65. Mm -hmm. 45 of that's due and payable. ATO were issuing circa 3,000 winding ups a year. Not all of them ending up in winding up, but just issuing that demand, that process, holds the business to account, then triggers a triggers payment, a, a payment or, or before it gets too far away, or, or they go and get some advice that might end up in a voluntary administration. Right now, the ATO, or ATO wrote to 30,000 businesses that owed them over $100,000 about 12 weeks ago and said to them, you haven't engaged with us, you haven't lodged, you haven't paid, but we think you owe us over 100, you need to engage. I'm advised by the ATO that 25% of those people or taxpayers reached out and have entered into an arrangement or paid it. The other 75% ignored it. They're now receiving the letter said, um, you need to engage, we can garnish your bank account, we can um, put something on your, your, your credit rating, uh, or we can issue a DPN, a Director Penalty Tax Notice. To me, that's the biggest stick. So what have they done? They're starting to issue 1,000 to 2,000 a month, and on the three industries they're focusing on, construction's at the top of the list. They're issuing the director penalty notices yeah. you're talking yeah. about, not the gunner No, they're going, the they're going director penalty tax yeah. notices, which really hit home and a personal one, which basically says you've got 21 days to do something. Yeah. Pay it, enter into an arrangement to pay it, or appoint a liquidator or administrator. So 
I think that's going to shake out, and I think we'll see a little bit more over the next probably three to six months. months. Yeah, yeah. As, as that starts to, to to ramp up. We've talked a little bit about some of the problems or issues that the construction industry are experiencing that are causing these. We've already talked about a few of those, but is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is having a significant impact on the insolvencies in the construction industry? It sounds one of the things that you said a bit earlier was around transparency and that that's not necessarily a now problem. It's been a problem that's been around for a long time. But are there any others that we haven't sort of talked about you think are causing major problems here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, transparency is also a big issue on some of these government infrastructure projects because it's, you know, um, it's it's all of our money um, and people want to know how it's being spent and if there are cost overruns and there are disputes and things are going into um, dispute, people want to know how those things um, are being resolved and a, lo a lot of it ends up being covered by confidentiality so we don't actually get to see some of that stuff. I think it's worth reiterating what we talked about earlier, which is at the real fundamental level, the insolvencies in construction are caused by a cash flow issue where either a builder um, has underpriced for a job or has delays on getting um, regular progress payments. Some of the reasons underlying that as to why that happens, I think, come down to things that have been fairly well publicised in various reports into the industry. One that uh, we think about at the start of the, the life of a project is this obsession with fast-tracking major projects. So the idea that not enough time and effort and money gets spent at the front end of a project to properly scope out what work has to be done, how much it should cost and how um, the project should be executed. I think if that sort of puts you into a break fix type model where you go into a project knowing that something's going to go wrong, but then you just fix it on the run. Um, another well, one. Sort of indicative sorry. of the current world that we live in, isn't it? Because everything is always a rush. Everything is always fast paced. So what you're saying is we need to slow down a bit and actually really think through the different stages of the project and maybe even build in a, a bit of a buffer at each stage at the moment. That's going to be really important. Governments want to announce uh, that ground has been broken and the projects mm -hmm. are on track and um, financiers don't like paying for um, feasibility studies and the like. And if there's that much money coming through, I think you said the infrastructure projects um, that have been identified, that's not going to change, is it? I don't think so. I mean, it's something that's been spoken about for a long time. I mean, we've done presentations in the past that we've called lessons that won't be learnt and mm. mistakes to be repeated because that's something that you could point to on almost every project. It would be rare that you'd have more than 10% of engineering, final engineering done before contracts are signed and people are um, clearing the earth. I think there's been a, a shift to a certain degree of more collaboration within the industry, particularly through early contractor involvement, uh, ECI arrangements. And they don't have to be exclusive arrangements with any one contractor. They can be, you can run a dual track there. And quite often the experiences we've seen is there've been better outcomes achieved because the problems have been identified up front rather than that typical situation where it's more of an adversarial approach from the get-go where you re resort to your contract positions and the 
structural issues of that, I suppose, the, the risk transfer down the line is overcome with an ECI and the benefits of it. Well, you, you certainly keep the competitive tension alive mm. if you've got two or three contractors engaged in taking a preliminary design to a final design and have worked out in some detail what the price and program will be they're still sort of on their best behavior to try and win the job to actually execute it and if you pay those unsuccessful tenderers under an ECI for being involved in that process then it just seems to set the project up for for better outcomes as Ted mentioned and there is an appetite certainly I think because of pushback from some of the bigger players on the fact that you know big builders not necessarily making any money on mega infrastructure projects um, there does seem to be a real appetite for a changing in of, of risk transfer and we're definitely seeing more engagement on collaborative models one other point of an issue facing the industry at the moment is market rumors of insolvency it's a big problem no craig could probably attest to this the amount of rumors and simon as well the rumors you hear out there in, this, in the industry of a builder and or large subcontractor facing or on the brink of insolvency. I'd say a lot of the times these are unfounded and I think it's by very nature of the industry as to why these rumours exist because there is it's a nature where disputes are commonplace and a dispute doesn't mean you're insolvent. The rumours have fueled the fire often and put further unnecessary mm. pressure on the participants. Well, is that just competitors putting pressure on other competitors to knock them out of the market? I don't think that's purely the case. No, I think disputes are commonplace and people inter interpret a dispute as they're having problems. And, and it is a small uh, world and, you know, it, it, it is true. Last week we, we had an inquiry from a client about whether we had heard certain things about a, a builder um, and you're often sort of asked for that kind of insight and it's yeah, not uncommon. Well, I suppose that's part of people doing their due diligence, isn't it? To actually be speaking to you all because you're involved in this industry and you know what, you know, you've got your ear to the ground. So that's what they should be doing in some ways. Yeah, Whether or not you answer it, you know, is a whole other thing. That's right. I mean, the, the rumours are, are not necessarily something that you would act upon, but the due diligence that you do mm. on the back of hearing some of those rumours. So disputes are commonplace so being in dispute is certainly not a red flag but it's worth checking because if if all of a sudden you've got a builder that's not particularly litigious making a whole lot of ambit claims on every project and it's all based on misleading and deceptive conduct or something that's probably a bit of an amber flag that there's a problem we see sometimes high level executives general counsels leaving a particular company at a certain time well that's something that mm. you know you might want to look into mm. various sort of other warning signs that there might be issues so um is there and again we have talked a little bit about this as we've gone through but a solution to the problems that we're seeing at the moment what can or should the government or industry be doing to try and pull the construction industry out of the situation one of the things that we've seen in the press a bit lately is around that vapor piece and the government opening up the borders for visas um, you know from people from overseas to come in and fill those voids um, so i presume that you would encourage that um, i won't put words in your mouth but i presume there's a 
um, in terms of talking about what might fix this problem, if that is a significant issue for the industry, then part of the problem solving is going out and actually opening up the borders and allowing those people in. But are there other solutions that you think of that would assist? Yeah, uh, look, I, I expect um, Ted and Craig will be able to um, speak about some of the things that the government could do in the insolvency space. Unfortunately, from a construction perspective, there aren't any easy fixes and we have a long and winding road of policy failures in this area. We've had the security of payment regime uh, that came in just before the Sydney Olympics and you'd have to say that that uh, has not been as successful as it was hoped to be. It comes uh, with all the best of intentions in terms of timely uh, payment, which would fix that fundamental issue of of cash flow, but unfortunately we have eight different regimes. There's been calls, calls for harmonisation of the legislation that haven't been taken on by our various state and territory governments. We have reforms to each of those models that don't necessarily make things any clearer or any better for the for the industry in Victoria is a particularly problematic regime and I'm not alone there even you know the Supreme Court of Victoria have criticized the legislation as being uh, tortuous we've more recently as every young construction lawyer would say being involved in that process <laughs> yes exactly be, I've been there and done that and the intention was for it to be a process that didn't require, um, you know, heavy um, external legal assistance. Well, that's not at all right, is it? It hasn't turned out like that at all. Yeah, you, you have armies of lawyers that, that have been working on the many hundreds and thousands of security for payment applications that have been made across across the decades. We ha we've had lots of royal inquiries, we've had government-sponsored reviews, we've had private reviews done, and I think one of the more recent reviews was done by uh, Professor Alan Murray, who had a lot of criticism for, for governments in terms of not making the difficult decisions and doing the, the, the tough things. Another policy that hasn't quite provided the, the relief that um, the governments were, were looking for, the project bank accounts, which can add to the red tape that already exists and uh, can even slow down the transfer of, of money um, through the, the contracting chain. So there is a need for reform. I think there is an appetite and an opportunity to do it. I mentioned the Olympics. We've got another one coming up in 10 years' time um, and there'll be a lot of infrastructure projects that do not need major contractors to become insolvent um, right. whilst that's all being undertaken. I might um, throw to Ted and Craig to mention some of the reforms that they think might you want to go, Ted? I, I guess we were talking earlier around bank guarantees and retentions, and it's something we always see when company falls over. But I'm going to talk about that. There's a couple of points. There is when we get into a situation where there is uh, an insolvency event, is the retentions that are either the cashback retentions go missing. Now, for a subcontractor, and we talked earlier about those being impacted at the mum and dad levels, there's a significant amount of profit that's tied up in cash retentions. Alternatively, if there's bank guarantees sitting there, they're often asset backed and that asset's generally the family home, which poses a big problem down the chain uh, and, and the issues that exist there. The other point is this lack of transparency of payments being made. Uh, time and time again, 
when we arrive at a situation of insolvency, there's been non-payment down to subcontractor level, albeit the developers paid the progress payments to the builder, that hasn't flowed down the line. Whether there's a regime that can target the transparency of payments down the line, I think would go a long way in solving a few of the issues we see. And so, some of the, the other things is we've talked about mega projects. I think there's 10 projects on at the moment that are worth more than $5 billion. Or, you know, the, the, the projects are getting bigger and bigger. One possible solution for governments would be to break those projects down into smaller projects and smaller packages that would increase the competition and uh, be encouraging um, of either the Australian mid-tier um, market or um, some of the international contractors coming into the, to, to the market. But, but um, that's unlikely to happen at the moment in the current environment, isn't it? Because government's going to be concerned that those parties that it might then use that it may not have otherwise used may be at risk for insolvency. I think that's right. However, if you break down those projects, hopefully the sort of the, the risk that's attached to them Mitigated. is also um, more manageable. Yeah, they're smaller packages that can be relayed or you know, the whole project doesn't fall doesn't out, fall so, yeah. Yeah. And the other optimistic sort of look forward in terms of what are some of the solutions to this problem, we've, we've talked about labour. I, I think it's a good opportunity for the construction industry to do some introspection and think about where are some opportunities for improvement. And I think culture is definitely one of those things. You've got, you know, in terms of diversity participation rates, if there could be improvements made there, you're going to be more likely to attract the talent that you need. And I think that the future of construction is going to be a much more industrialised one where you're going to have people, needed people with maths and science backgrounds. Um, so it won't just be about getting enough blue-collar workers to a site. It's going to be about being industrialist, um, technologically advanced industry um, with the smartest people. And there's probably some changes that will be needed to be made to the reputation of the industry to be able to compete at that level. I think um, Robert's in Sydney, certainly, Alison Myrams is certainly pushing that. She's, I think she's running a project in Sydney on a five-day week, for instance, and she speaks to the impact that has has already had on on her team um, as far as just fathers being able to go to their kids' sport on the weekend rather than working Saturdays and just that mental health and welfare aspect of it. So that's something they're trying and she speaks to that that's working. I'd be interested to see how that plays out. It was interesting. I know when you're talking about diversity, you're talking not just about gender diversity there, but it was quite interesting the other day. I, I drove past a construction site and I could not believe the number of females on the construction site. In fact, it looked to me to be like a majority of women um, on that construction site. So perhaps we're already starting to see changes in that regard. Good work. Has definitely been done but there's a, a, a lot more that still needs to be done in terms of those women sort of feeling comfortable and safe mm -hmm. and um, secure and flourishing in that environment and you think if you had a university medalist daughter that um, came home and said that she wanted to have a career in the construction industry it obviously could lead to a very exciting career but you may have some misgivings about that right now um, in terms of that choice to just wrap it up then the sorts of things that you are talking to your clients Simon about we've got to start with you yeah and the sorts of things that you're telling your clients at the moment can you give some insights into that yeah sure I mean obviously we have a, a practice that spans owners contractors subcontractors and we talk to them at different 
times on a project. Um, sometimes it'll be before contracts are actually let um, and we have that opportunity to talk to them at the very start, project conception, and then obviously we, we get brought in sometimes after the problems have arisen. A lot of what we are talking about is the need to be forewarned and then forearmed, the consequences for uh, insolvencies manifesting in a construction project are just so extreme that parties ought to be putting some thought into things and being proactive from the start. So problem avoidance at the, at the front end, which is the due diligence, the project planning, but also getting the procurement model right and entering into a contract that is less likely to bring about uh, disputes and also better able to protect your interests in circumstances where there might be insolvencies. Through project ex execution, there's risk minimization stuff that can be done. Um, we often talk to them about warning signs. I should say at that front end, at the moment, clients are very interested to talk about pricing. Mm. So in the past, there's been major pressure for big contractors to take the risk on price as a lump sum. Uh, and there is a need at the moment to sort of carve out certain important inputs into that pricing. So that's, that's a real live issue. And we're seeking to be as up to date as possible as to how that can be dealt with. And then, of course, there's the disputes, the problem solving. So protecting parties' interests and rights once the problems existed and I think some of the things that um, Ted and Craig have mentioned already are, you know, around bank guarantees. Do you need to be ready to try and injunct a call if, if you're going to be on that side and, and vice versa? Do you need to be ready to call one in case that's in your client's interest? So it's sometimes just as simple as either getting money in or stopping money going out. And yeah, that, that's the sort of stuff we've been talking to clients about. Or getting the experts in, which leads me across to you, Craig. Well, bank, you, yeah, bank guarantees are interesting because we've seen a real change. Like the yep. early call, people tend to move in this current market. There used to be, I think, a bit of a respect about them and, and wait to, to work your way through and do your accounts and, and see if there is a, a reason to call. I think we're seeing more and more just call it and they'll deal with the paperwork later, which is not ideal. Um, my advice, early engagement with my things. Uh, if, you've got a, if you think you've got a problem or you've got some issues, get some help. Mm. Um, get people involved. Uh, and then from an, an insolvency perspective, it's all about meaningful financial information, meaningful, timely. These things are all about cash and cash flow. And if you're not on top of your cash flow and you're not managing that through and letting it slip and dealing with poor information, you're going to make poor decisions. So being on top of that is really important. Just on that, um, you know, getting people in early to have a look at your situation. If you're not sure, get someone in because that whole area of restructuring it has become, particularly over COVID, I think, well, you, you tell me if I'm wrong about this, but um, I saw that as a really growing area. So that whole get people in early, look at your business, give you an a, um, honest assessment of where you sit and then put implement plans and ideas to actually turn the business around if it is um, starting to track in the wrong direction. Correct. So. And, and I guess often yeah, they don't know how to navigate the situation. No. They they know their industry, but then if you get some assistance, it can help buy some time, create some space and come up with some creative solutions to survive. But more often than not, we get the call at a minute to midnight. You can't oh, save it. It's do. done. Yeah. Whereas it, it, when then when it's you're in and you start to investigate and have a look at what were the circumstances leading to the appointment and you look back and thought, golly, if only we got involved in six months ago, there was an opportunity, if not to save it all, but to restructure it and save part of it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I guess pride gets in the line, things get away from them 
and it's only at the end, but yet a, a director penalty takes notice or something like that, which puts you on that burning deck. And 21 days is often not enough to time to work through those issues. Yeah. And and I think from a project perspective, once those things have happened and you guys are involved, there's some threshold questions to be asked. You know, do you want to complete the project? Usually the answer is yes. Uh, well, do you want to continue on with the builder that's in distress or do you want to cut and run to someone else? You're always going to pay extra for someone else to finish the job and then you've got to sort through whether or not you can novate your subcontracts and suppliers. And So there's a lot of things that you need to ask yourself and work out very quickly um, and there's no time to waste. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo those sentiments. The early involvement, early interactions key. Uh, as Simon said, replacing a build is a costly exercise and the best approach as we've seen it is to work with your, the existing builder in managing it through to completion. They're the best outcomes, not only for the developer, but the financier and subcontractors alike. So early involvement, get on top of the issues and manage it through to completion. All right, excellent. Well, thank you for your time. It's a very comprehensive and very interesting discussion. It's been a treat to hear from each of you and I thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Pip. Thanks, Pip. Thanks, Pip. Hi there. That's a wrap for the View from the Castle podcast for today. We hope you have picked up some useful tips and tricks and enjoyed listening to all things legal finance. If you want to continue the conversation, please reach out via email or via our website, castle.com.au. We would love to discuss what you are seeing in the legal finance industry and what we can do to enhance and improve it together. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.